Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. And I'm Leah Kaufman. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests. So that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear, we hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute fleece vest. Thanks, Leah. And now on to today's podcast, which features two more researchers that we met at the 2006 Regenerate World Congress in April. First up today is my interview with Dr. Kevin Shakechef of the University of Nottingham. He is developing new scaffolds from a familiar material, polylactic acid, the same stuff that makes up sutures that can be absorbed by the body. Dr. Shakechef imagines outfitting surgeons with a syringe full of polylactic acid that is enhanced with growth factors or even the patient's own cells to inject into an area that needs help to heal. Over at the UK Center for Tissue Engineering, however, Dr. Nicholas Rhodes would like to do away with the scaffolds altogether. As we'll hear from Dr. Rhodes, not all inflammation is bad. And he's programming regeneration by harnessing and directing the body's natural inflammatory response. Let's hear from Dr. Shakechef now. Uh, my name is Kevin Shakechef. And what institution do you work at? I work at the University of Nottingham, which is in the United Kingdom. And what do you do there? Uh, well, originally I was a pharmacist, so I work in the School of Pharmacy and I teach pharmacy undergraduate students. And then my research is in regenerative medicine, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got a fairly big research group, about 30 people working on um, materials that would go into the body and then induce um, a repair of a tissue. So, so like a, a laboratory-made synthetic material? Yes. Is this that phrase targeted drug delivery that we keep hearing about, that we don't really know what it is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's sort of the simplest form of targeted drug delivery. Um, when you talk about targeted drug delivery, some people like to think about, say, um, taking a tablet and then the drug is targeted towards a tumor, let's say a brain tumor. That's really clever targeting. Our targeting is much more simple because we identify the part of the body that we hope to regenerate and then we just inject our material directly at that site. Mm -hmm. can, can you describe a practical application? Yeah, sure. So. Um, if you think of a patient, uh, maybe someone with osteoporosis mm -hmm. who finds it hard to regenerate bone, typically an, an elderly patient, and uh, if they um, have a break of their, their leg bone and they're unable to regenerate that tissue as quickly as, as you or I would be able to. Um, so what you've got is a cavity that won't naturally reform the bone. Um, we would put in the hands of the clinician a syringe which would contain a material they would inject that material into the cavity mm -hmm. and it would form what we call a scaffold, so a three-dimensional porous material that looks a little bit like a bathroom sponge, mm -hmm. if that's an American term that you understand. <laughs> and uh, that gives you space and pores that the new bone will hopefully grow into. What is the material made of? It's uh, quite an old-fashioned material. Um, it's called polylactic acid. Uh, and the reason we use that is it's been used for about 40 years now in sutures. Mm -hmm. So if you have surgery deep within the body and the surgeon wants to sew you up, they'll sew into you a, a fiber material that naturally breaks down within the body. We use exactly the same material. 
And the reason we chose that material is because it's been used in millions of patients for 30 years. Um, it means people are generally comfortable with the concept of, of putting that into the body. Well, also, would you have to go through a whole new regulatory process? With you wouldn't it? have to go through a whole new one, but you would <laughs> still have to prove that in the particular site of the body that you want to put it in, or in the what we call a particular formulation, which is all the other things that you put in there, mm -hmm. the mixture, is the mixture still safe? Are you mixing in, um, say, the patient's own cells or anything like that to help bone form more quickly? Eventually, yeah. We... Um, we have a company in the UK called Regentech, which is a spin-out from the university group. And um, what we want to do is, over a period of, it's actually around about 20 years, our plan, which is frightening. But it's, <laughs> it starts, we hope, within three years, being able to get a product into patients, which is very simple. It's just the polymer we discussed. Um, the next product, which takes another eight years to develop, would then have a, a growth factor or a drug within the material. Uh, and then the final product, which could take anything from 10 to 20 years to develop, would have um, cells, stem cells within there, which would target the absolute hardest type of patient, the patient who's not going to grow the tissue again unless we give them some more cells. So that could be used in the case of bad traumas where you've got a really big bone break. Yeah, and it's, it's not just bone. Um, the, the concept that we've developed is one that you can apply to lots of different tissues. Ah. Um, and again, that's important because we're all having quite a lot of troubles thinking about how we're going to get products into the market. It's very, very expensive to develop the products that we'd like to develop. So if we can come up with one product that can then be, be used in bone, liver, neural applications, then you only have to develop it once. You only have to pay for the development once. Mm. And then hopefully patients and, and investors can see payback across a whole range of different tissues. I have a stupid question about your um, polymer. Yep. Because I, you know, sutures are already solidified. They're already made into thread mm. that's you know, got a texture and a feel. But you're talking about a liquid of some sort, yes? Or is it like a bead, beads in suspension? Or it's what beads keeps in it from suspension. Okay. Um, but it, it goes through sort of a clever thermal change when it goes into the body. Huh. And um, the idea is that it would be um, on, the on the shelf stored, uh, obviously at room temperature, which is about 20, 25 degrees centigrade. And then um, once it goes into the body, it goes up to 37 degrees centigrade. And that temperature increase would uh, change the uh, behavior of the beads, and they would actually stick to each other. Wow. And, and thereby form a three-dimensional material. That's pretty cool stuff. So I hear a rumor that you did a postdoc here, but you've also recently done a sabbatical here in the States. Yeah, I did a, I did a postdoc at MIT in the mid-90s, and then I came back last summer and worked with Alan Russell and the team at McGowan. Oh, I think we know them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how does the, the system, let's start with, say, uh, getting funding. How are those different between the U.S. and the U.K.? Um, it's an interesting contrast. I think in the U.K. we tend to get smaller amounts of money more often. Um, that was one of the observations I had over here, that um, typically in the U.K. I, I may be successful three times a year in getting a grant, but that grant would only fund maybe one person. Mm -hmm. so, so we've got quite a big team, so you constantly need to be bringing in small grants. 
the, the observation I had over here was successful groups of about the same size as mine may only actually hold two grants, but those grants of such a, a large size that it funds their entire group, which I think is a very good system if you're established because you don't spend your whole time writing the next grant application. I guess it's hard for young researchers trying to break into the field, though, because you get less opportunities to apply and... Yeah. I think the success rate is lower in the U.S. Perhaps. I think there are some new programs at the NIH, as I, well, relatively new, mm. um, that reward young investigators in particular right. for um, their work. But um, Again, it, it is notoriously difficult, yes. And there's that middle area as well where you're no longer considered a young, but you're no longer a considered to have done everything. And or you're struggling to get out from the specter of your of your yeah. lab head or your mentor or yeah. what have you and be independent. So, yeah. so there is the equivalent of the, of the National Institutes of Health in the UK. Is there some agency like that in, and redistributes them you know, yeah. to grants? We have um, three main what we call research councils. So these are government bodies, a bit like the NIH. So we have one that does engineering. So the materials that we develop will be funded by that. We have one that then deals with the biology, so say stem cell biology would be handled by that. And then we have the Medical Research Council, which is the equivalent to the NIH, but tends to do less of the pure biology research. So we, we have three different councils. We also have things like the Wellcome Trust mm -hmm. uh, that we can apply to. I, I wanted to ask about public attitudes in the UK. Do you, I don't know if you've spent, felt like you've spent enough time here in the US to comment, but um, is the public supportive of this crazy new idea of regrowing body parts? I think the, the public's less aware in the UK than the US. Um, it's more aware, perhaps, of the issues relating to stem cell technology, and particularly embryonic stem cell technology. I think the UK has handled that issue extremely well, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I think, in general, people are less proactive about their health in the UK Hmm. than in the U.S. That probably comes down to a culture where we have something called the National Health Service, and health is something which is evenly distributed, so regardless of how much you earn, you get the same health care. But as a result of that, because you're not purchasing your insurance, people don't tend to interrogate the kind of health care that they're getting. You don't need to be an active consumer of it. You're not a consumer, no. Yeah. You're, you're sort of passive. And I think as a result of that, people are less inclined to think about how technologies will impact on their on their futures. So I think there's a lot more there's a lot more hype in the US about regenerative mm -hmm. medicine, but there's also a lot more genuine interest as well. Mm -hmm. How has uh, the UK handled the stem cell issue since you brought it up? Um, so the embryonic stem cell issue um, Thank you. Yes. has been <coughs> has been handled through I think very good regulation. Um, we have something called the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which was really set up in response to the issues um, about test tube babies. Well, you guys pioneered IVF, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not personally, but yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take credit for the UK. So Dr. Brown? No, the Louise Brown was the first IVF Louise Brown baby. was the yeah. first, yeah. Um, so we've always had this system whereby you have to go through a lot of very tight regulation. Um, but I think what that's allowed is a degree of public comfort that people are watching this carefully. Uh, and things do get turned down, procedures do get turned down. 
Um, and it's into that framework that the embryonic stem cell debate entered uh, about five years ago, and it was um, debated at national level in the national parliament, mm -hmm. and the, um, an act came out, and um, that really said that the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority would license all activities in embryonic stem cells. And coming out of that, there was a UK stem cell bank, mm -hmm. which... Um, Again, I think it's a good venture where anyone in the UK who derives a new embryonic stem cell must put that cell into the bank, and the bank then must make that available to anyone else in the UK who, who wishes to use it. So you don't have embryonic stem cell work essentially um, confined to certain labs. All of us in the UK can get access to all of the cells that are available. How many cell lines are in that bank? I don't know the answer to that question. More than the nine alleged ones we probably have going in the U.S. that are presidentially approved. I'm it just might not be a lot more because I guess people have only been depositing for the last couple of years. They're notoriously um, difficult to sustain as well, I yeah. understand. So. And, and what the U.K. Stem Cell Bank has is some very robust protocols, and it's also working uh, to what we call GLP, Good Laboratory practice. Um, and the advantage of that potentially is that if, let's say, 10 years down the road, there is an embryonic stem cell therapy, mm -hmm. which you want to use, you will be able to go back to the cells that are derived today in the UK and know that they've been handled uh, by an audited and validated process. So the cells going in today should be usable in 10 years' time. And that means there's going to be very little wastage of, mm -hmm. of new cell lines. Nice. It sounds like we're the wild, wild west. <laughs> you folks are giving it a little more consideration than we are. Is there anything you'd like to add as we wrap up? Um, I mean, just to really say that I think the conference has been superb, but also more broadly, I think um, Pittsburgh's been one of the centers that's really shown leadership. You know, Alan Russell, but the much broader team, Bill Wagner, um, play a really important role across the world in sort of showing what is possible. And uh, people like Alan Russell come over to the UK and certainly tell the UK funders why this is a great opportunity. And uh, hearing it from someone from the US, I think, really endorses this. Okay. It's, I, I think that's a cool message, actually, that um, it's like sharing the wealth. Yeah. That I the mean, whole field should be built up. We're not just a certain center in a certain city somewhere. But that's yeah. a, cool. Thanks for your time today. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Leah. I enjoyed that discussion. And now let's hear your interview with Dr. Rhodes. I work within the, the UK Centre for Tissue Engineering, and we have a broad uh, base of, of different programmes. But one of my particular interests is in looking at ways in which we could uh, replace the current models of tissue engineering where we take biopsies from patients uh, purify and isolate cell populations, grow them up, then seed and inoculate scaffolds of different uh, types of polymers, plastics, this sort of thing, and then implant them as uh, pieces of, uh, of sophisticated uh, either preformed tissue or uh, tissues that will be formed when they're in the body. Uh, this is a very complex, expensive, time-consuming procedure, and what we would like to try and do is to replace this kind of uh, model with a 
uh, a way of working in which you just take the piece of scaffold or, or plastic which has been optimised to pull in the correct cell populations whilst in the body and that would allow you to implant in a, a much more simplified procedure at the time that you want to uh, implant into a patient and it would allow a company to uh, manufacture in a, a more standard manufacturing process a, a medical device which they could then sell uh, at a, a price which would allow them to, to generate nice profits but not uh, make a huge hole in the health services of, of different uh, governments and, uh, and societies. So I like the bigger picture, but I think we do need to step back a bit and, uh, and let's talk about why we need a scaffold in the first place. Okay. W what's the purpose of using a scaffold in tissue engineering? So in, in general, uh, your tissues are made up of cells and um, a gooey stuff called extracellular matrix. The stuff between the cells, the as stuff I like between to think the of cells. it. Yes. And um, generally in the lab you isolate cells that are stuck onto pieces of plastic and they're, they're not generating very much of this matrix. So if, if we wanted to uh, implant something into a person then you require these cells positioned uh, in, in an organised fashion with spaces in between which allows them to generate this extracellular matrix and to organise themselves in a three-dimensional fashion. So your matrix doesn't have to be a solid thing, but it can be. It could be uh, a viscous gel or something like jello, mm -hmm. <laughs> for example. Um, but it needs to have a three-dimensional uh, 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 architecture so that cells have some relationship to each other, but in a, uh, a sense which allows some sort of repair to be made uh, in a three-dimensional way I I in the body. So in sort of the way like a scaffold surrounds a building as it's undergoing repair, That's right. a tissue engineering scaffold supports cells as they become new tissue... That's right, yes. And it may support it chemically with growth factors yes. or with uh, things that nourish those cells to encourage them to grow in the way we want them Yes, to. and it also influences the cell chemically and also biomechanically. So it, it provides signals into the cells in both those, th those ways. So the, the extracellular matrix is, is very important. And so your scaffold will, or, or, or matrix, we might like to call a non-solid scaffold a matrix, this is a common terminology, and this can provide both those types of signals in the same way. So the, you referred to the scaffolds that you're working on as bits of plastic, though I have a feeling they're a bit more complex than that. Yes. Will, will they, like a true plastic, or a plastic that, you know, that we find in a pop bottle, a soda bottle, will it, would it persist in the body forever, or are the ones you're planning able to break down as tissues grow on them. Well, there is uh, a, a general principle that they probably should degrade, but it's not necessarily the case. But, but in actual fact, the ones that we work with uh, almost certainly do that and uh, produce uh, 
a, a tissue at the end, which hopefully you would not be able to tell was different from the, uh, the stuff that you were trying to, to reproduce. So rather than load it up with the patient cells or some donated cells, you're making scaffolds that, have, that can give all the right signals to draw in a patient's cells from the surrounding tissues to do what you want which sounds sort of mysterious and science fiction-y. So can you tell us a little bit more about that in detail? So cells have very complex signalling arrangements. And one of the very specific things which um, cells do is to home to sites where repair is needed. Um, but the, the, this signalling really is uh, dependent on the, the site and the, uh, it will draw in different types of cell. Uh, but the, the, the uh, biochemical environment within that repair site will cause a change in differentiation from uh, possibly a common progenitor precursor cell into cells of different lineages. And what we would like to do is to, to understand the signals, the chemical signals, that induce a specific population of cells to be drawn in and to be created. And th th this is the, the sort of thing that we're working on, is understanding those signals so that we can, uh, for example, uh, take uh, a piece of plastic, <laughs> to, to use the common terminology, but yes, you're quite right. It's a complex uh, uh, synthesis of... Uh, 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 of well, possibly a common plastic type, but which has been treated in a way which, uh, which does indeed uh, provide these complex signals for a particular cell type. So, for example, we may wish to produce uh, some soft tissue and we can draw in some uh, precursor cells which then create the cells of, uh, of the right phenotype for so soft tissue. Do I understand you correctly then that you first have to understand, say, a normal wound healing scenario? You have to understand what cells are coming in first, what they're doing, how they're influencing other cells, you know, what that sequence is to get a wound to heal before you can replicate it or approximate it well enough with a bit of plastic <laughs> that's been well, imbued with the right things. Yes, I mean, that, that would be the most logical way to understand it. In fact, a lot of these things don't work quite that way because you, you, you come a, across these phenomena perhaps in a, a serendipitous mm -hmm. fashion. So one of the things we've, we've found is that making a slight change to the chemistry induces a different set of cells to, uh, to appear uh, or, in fact, induces a set of cells to appear when, before that slight change, you didn't see any cells Appearing. Um, now, one of the things which is, is really necessary is to understand this inflammatory response, certainly, but um, I, I think it doesn't work quite in the way which you describe. We don't set out to understand exactly the, those processes and then design the, the chemistry. Uh, it would be nice if that was the way it happens. But it takes too long. It takes... Yes, it, 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 we're not. We don't have the correct um, understanding of all the, the big picture of of, of of the homing 
mechanisms and, and these kind of things to allow us to do that. So, so it's built on, on these rather uh, interesting findings. So you sort of change one factor and you see what the res- how, the, how it responds in your experiment and then you, of course, write that down. And then you change another factor and you see what sort of response comes from that. And, yes. And, what, and you mentioned inflammation. Yes. And because we've all been watching our um, Vioxx commercials and Celebrex ads and whatnot, I think that our audience thinks of inflammation as the bad thing that causes us pain and whatnot. But it's actually an important part of healing, isn't it? Yes. But is it bad? (laughs) No, um, but inflammation does occur in a complex fashion, and there are a whole subtle set of ways in which uh, an inflammatory response can proceed, which is subtly different from, from, from other inflammatory responses. And what we would like to do is to... Uh, tune that inflammatory response which allows the correct biochemical signals to be released by inflammatory cells that help the differentiation patterns of the cells which are drawn in to that wound healing response. So hard is it for good and and not evil? (laughs) It should be used for good, yes. And it can be used for good. Uh, But but it is true. A lot of people do think of an inflammatory response as something which should be avoided at all costs. And and sometimes it is something you want to try and reduce. But certainly it is possible to control that in a way which drives your response rather than uh, inhibiting your response. Now, you you mentioned earlier that this may be a more realistic approach to bringing tissue engineering, regenerative medicine to the market because it doesn't involve biopsying cells from a patient. Rather, it's sort of an on-the-shelf, off-the-shelf product that has a good shelf life. It doesn't require special preservation because it's synthetic and whatnot. But realistically, how far do you think you are from having a clinical product? Well, uh, I think there are certain products which could be uh, used for simple tissues which, which may be very close uh, using this, this paradigm uh, I think possibly for, for complex organs or tissues that have maybe two or three cell types we're a little bit further away but I don't think we're that far away Yeah. Um, it, it will be the next generation of devices, uh, I think maybe in uh, five years we'll be talking about how we can grow blood vessels from uh, a non-cell-seeded uh, seed, device. Now, whether that is going to be put into people in five years' time, I think is highly doubtful, because the period of time it takes for uh, approval for uh, organisations like the FDA is a very long one, but I, I think that, that this could be much closer than, than, than perhaps even people within tissue engineering conferences perhaps believe. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks, Leah. Another interesting discussion. For more information about Dr. Shakechef and Rhodes, please see the links on our website, regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine, coming to you in late August. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail 
at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We do hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com, and do join us again in a few weeks. 